Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Neuroscience Rounds. This is round five. We'll be talking about audition. Uh, my name is Christy Snyder calling. Um, so talk about audition. We'll have a little bit on aphasias and then a little bit in the vestibular system today. So first I want to start with a question. Is there sound in space? Assuming there's an ear and a brain. So no, uh, what is perceived as sound begins as pressure waves. Um, so it has to go through a medium, be that air, liquid, or solid. So the pressure waves go and they have oscillations and the human ear is sensitive to between 20 and 20,000 oscillations per second. It's most acute around 1,000 or 3,000, which is human speech. So I'm going to trace in uh, the sound wave uh, path here. This is your ear, this is the pinna. Uh, pressure waves come in through the ear canal then hit the tympanic membrane. This is your eardrum. And then it hits the ossicles, it's these three bones here. You have the malleus, which is the hammer, the incus, which is the anvil, and the stapes, uh, which is a stirrup from your middle school biology classes. So the sound comes in, hits the tympanic membrane, and it hits these three bones. It then hits the foot plate of the stirrup, hits this oval window here of the cochlea. The cochlea is full of fluid. So what happens is the foot plate hits in and it moves the fluid, and then it moves out and this, it goes down through the cochlea, but also pushes out this round window. So it goes in, it pushes, and it causes waves to go down through the cochlea. Um, okay, so this is the cochlea here, and this is the cochlea if it was laid out. So this is the base, and this is the apex. The base is here, the apex is here. And um, as the waveforms go down, you know, high-pitched frequencies have a lot of very short peaks. So they peak here at the base. Middle frequencies are a little bit longer, so they peak at different places in the cochlea. And then long or low uh, wave frequencies are at, here at the apex. So depending on the pitch, depends on where in the cochlea the peaks peak. And when the peaks peak, um, they hit um, air, uh, hair cells. So just gonna take a cross section of the cochlea here. The cochlea has three different uh, compartments or what's called scala, which is Latin for steps. So the first people cut it open, thought it was like steps here. You have the scala tympani on the bottom, the scala media in the center, and the scala vestibuli in the top here. So the waveforms go up and they're in here and they move this basilar membrane here. And that's where the hair cells are. This is the organ of corti. So these are the hair cells. So here is an actual uh, microscopic look at them. The yellow ones at the bottom are the inner hair cells. And then the kind of V-shaped ones at the top are the outer hair cells. Here it is again, inner and outer. So there are more outer than inner hair cells. Um, the, the inner hair cells are kind of round and short. 
and they have lots of afferent fibers. If you remember, that means it goes to the brain, afferent. Um, so this is the sound formation going to the brain. So the outer hair cells, there's much more of them, and they're kind of elongated, and they have mostly efferent um, nerve connections. So that means from the brain. So that's interesting. Why do you think uh, there would be messages going to these hair cells? What happens when the brain sends out a signal? So when the brain sends out the information, it's for movement, right? So if the time the brain sends out information, something moves. So here, this means that these cells actually move. They go longer or shorter. And that's to amplify the vibrations. So these hair cells here, they have the sound waves going here. These can go longer or shorter to amplify and kind of direct the movement to these inner cells here. That's kind of cool. Uh, that's the only um, sensory cell that has movement in the um, ear. Uh, these are, these hair cells um, cannot regenerate. So once you uh, damage these by loud sounds, you're, you're out of luck. They will not grow back. Um, and this is one way that you could go deaf. Um, interestingly enough, birds, hair cells do grow back in like three weeks. So there's a lot of research going on right now uh, looking at you know, how do we, how can we regenerate these hair cells? We look at the birds, see what they're doing. Maybe we look at some stem cells. Um, but uh, that's why you shouldn't listen to loud music in your headphones because once these are gone, they're gone. All right, so I'm going to uh, do some more tracing here. So pressure waves come in through the pinna and they go through the ear canal. They hit the um, eardrum and they hit the ossicles here. Foot plate moves the oval window. Waves go through the cochlea, are picked up by the hair cells. The hair cells then go through the vestio, uh, vestibulocochlear nerve and then it hits the cochlear nucleus and the superior olive and the brainstem. Then it moves up to the inferior colliculus and then the medial geniculus, which is the thalamus. And then it goes up to um, A1, which is the primary auditory cortex. This is another view of that. I um, don't know which ones you will prefer to see, um, but you can see that um, A1 is in this here. The primary auditory cortex is here on both sides. This is kind of flipped. This is the left side. You have uh, Brodmann's area 41 and 42, which is the primary auditory cortex. And you have, uh, this is Brodmann's 22, which is Wernicke's area, which we'll talk about in a bit. But generally, uh, the primary auditory cortex identifies fundamental sound elements like pitch and loudness. Um, it is tonotopically organized. So we talked about um, somatotopically organized uh, in the somatosensory. So I kind of look at the size of the cortex. This was devoted to uh, you know, areas in the brain that have more feeling. So here is tonotopic. So that means that places in the auditory uh, cortex is like the, the low frequencies are here and then it steps up to different frequencies. I have a picture of it coming. But So they hit here the different frequencies in the cochlear uh, and the cochlea and the basilar membrane goes up, as I said here. There's high frequencies at the base and low frequencies at the apex. They hit different parts in the cochlea. They stay separated as they go up through um, the olivary complex and then through the, oh, sorry, it's kind of hard to see here, but inferior colliculus and the medicula, uh, medial geniculate and into um, A1. When it reaches A1, like I said, there are specific parts of A1, and they go up for the um, 
the pitches. Um, the secondary auditory cortex is just uh, around it. Um, it, it has, um, its function is for sound localization and analysis of complex sounds. So briefly, I want to talk about sound localization. So a sound moves at a given uh, uh, speed. Um, so when someone's talking to you, like me, if you're sitting off to this side, my voice will hit your left ear first and then your right ear. And there's a time difference between when it hits one ear and the other ear. So what your brain does to help you localize sound is it then subtracts the amount of time it takes to hit one ear and the other ear, and it helps you localize sound. Um, some animals also have um, ears that are offset vertically, and that also helps for them to localize more precisely. Owls do that. Um, so they're really good at finding like mice and snow. So now I want to um, move to talking about how different parts of the brain had different um, functional um, things they're responsible for. So I talked last week about um, how there's a face area and there's area for biological movements. There's also areas for different kinds of speech and language type things. So on the left side of the brain, you are mostly processing what is said. Whereas on the right side of the brain is how it's said. So prosody. So it's the tone of your voice. So you could say, I don't know, like, what did you do? Versus what did you do? And you can know if it's you know, a joke or lighthearted or there's someone's being very serious. Um, so that side of the brain is important for um, understanding emotion from tone. And when it's damaged, then you're not good at um, determining that. So that's one re uh, area that we can try to localize with neurofeedback. Over there. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to talking about some aphasias um, kind of briefly. Um, it's kind of related to <laughs> audition. Um, so we have, and this is the left side of the brain, we have Broca's area here and Wernicke's area here. And then there is a bundle of fibers that connect them called the arcuate fasciculus uh, that connects them. So Broca's aphasia is productive aphasia. Uh, basically, you can comprehend um, language, but you have a loss of fluency. So it's perpetual tip of the tongue. Um, these patients know that there is a problem with their um, language. They'll frequently just use nouns. They can't use articles well. Um, and they kind of go with very basic kind of groups. So they'll say, you know, dog instead of golden retriever. Um, so they, like I said, this perpetual tip of the tongue. And then you have Wernicke's aphasia, which is a lesion over this side, and that's receptive aphasia, where comprehension is impaired. These people don't know that they have a problem. Uh, they're very fluent, though. They will just be babbling lots of words, but it's just a bunch of random words drawn together. Um, they can't understand, so when you speak to them, they're not understanding what you're saying. And when they produce words, they don't know that what they're saying doesn't make sense to you. So they're very unaware of this deficit. So they're kind of polar opposites, uh, Broca's and Wernicke's aphasia. You also have a conductive aphasia, which is a lesion anywhere along the path here. And it's kind of a combination. So depending on where the lesion is. Uh, so you have fluent speech, but again, you use maybe the wrong words or sounds. Um, you have some comprehension, though. Um, you can um, name. Uh, sorry, you can't name or read. So if I say, you know, what is this? You can't say a cup or whatever. Um, sometimes they can uh, breathe silently to themselves. Sometimes not. Again, it depends where you are. 
And then depending on how close the lesion is to the motor area, you might have some difficulty with the voluntary movement as well. Um, there's some uh, other aphasias. So there's transcortical aphasias. And this is a transcortical, there's a motor one, and then there is a sensory one here. So um, the motor one is where there's a lesion that disconnects the Broca's area from the supplementary motor cortex. Um, this one you can repeat words and sentences. So you tell someone to say something, they can say it back, uh, but they can't generate speech creatively uh, by themselves. The sensory one is a lesion that disconnects the Wernicke's area from the posterior parietal temporal association area over there. Um, and this is their fluids, but they have impaired comprehension, so it's similar to Wernicke's. Um, they can't remember the meanings of words, essentially. Uh, but again, they can repeat spoken language. Uh, they cannot read, write, or find words. Let's talk very briefly about alexia and agraphia. So alexia is where you're unable to read, and agraphia is where you're unable to write. So sometimes you can have alexia with agraphia. Um, sometimes these lesions are in the parietal temporal occipital association area. So remember how I talked about their uh, primary cortices for vision or um, audition, which is a very basic, and then you have the secondary or association areas that gets more complex and nuanced, and then you have these heterogeneous areas that kind of combine information from different parts of the brain. So here you get a lesion in one of those areas, and so it's the area that connects the visual, auditory, and tactile information. So essentially the problem here is that you can't connect the visual symbols of the letters with the sounds they represent. If you have alexia without agraphia, Sometimes a problem can be with the left occipital lobe and then the splenium, splenium, splenium uh, is part of the corpus callosum. And that's the part in the very center of your brain that has a lot of fibers that connect the left and the right hemispheres. Um, so essentially the problem is that you can't see the word form. So I can say, um, spell cat, and you can spell C-A-T. I can say, what is C-A-T spell? And you can say cat. But if you look at it written out, and you can't process that at all. So I want to talk about, uh, this is uh, the illusion I was talking about, so the McGurk effect. So I also talked about with vision that just because what you see, kind of the primary elements, that's not exactly what vision is because vision is much more complex and you get the gestalt of it all. Well, you have a similar thing with hearing. So vision uh, as humans and primates in general, but as humans, uh, vision is our primary sense. Um, so whatever you see sometimes um, ranks higher than what you hear. So this is an example of uh, what you perceive uh, changes based on what the guy's mouth is doing. So I hope that this works. Maybe you should focus on this. There's a delay there. Now to the left of the screen. 
the illusion occurs because what you are seeing clashes with what you are hearing. Uh, in the illusion, um, what we see overrides what we hear. So um, the mouth movements we see as we look at a face can actually influence what we believe we're hearing. If we close our eyes, we actually hear the sound as it is. If we open our eyes, we actually see how the mouth movements can influence what we're hearing. Ba, ba, ba. It's a bizarre effect. Ba, ba, Remember, the only sound you're hearing is ba, ba with a B. Ba, 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 ba. What's remarkable about this illusion is even knowing how it's done doesn't seem to make a difference. Ba. The effect works no matter how much you know about the effect. I've been studying the McGurk So I don't know if it probably didn't work for up here, but if you're looking at the computer screen, you probably saw it. So when you they showed when he was saying ba, and then a video of him saying fa, but only the audio of ba. So based on whether the mouth was going ba or fa, changed what you perceived and what you heard. Um, again, because vision is our primary sense. That makes you wonder, uh, for kids today that are growing up and trying to learn speech, um, what all this mask wearing does, because uh, you can't see the mouth as they're making the sounds. So um, it's unfortunate that it's kind of being tested on the kids these days. It's relevant for Susan and I. Um, but you know, it is interesting anyway. Another uh, effect that I love, um, as a cognitive psychologist who studied attention, um, the cocktail party effect. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Um, not that we're having lots of cocktails this year for the same reason for the pandemic, um, but back in the old days when you had parties, you might be with one group over here and there are groups around the room. And then all of a sudden you're like, did that person just say my name over there talking about me? It's interesting because what that indicates is that at some level, all the information about what everyone's saying is entering your ear and being processed to some level. And then if it's personally relevant, it will then rise to attention and you'll actually process that. So that kind of gives you an indication of how much about the world is entering your brain that your brain is choosing not to process because your brain can only do so much. So I do hope that we go into uh, talk about that effect much more if we talk about attention because it's very interesting about theories of early and late filtering. Anyway, um, so just all that to say that uh, hearing is affected by vision and also by attention. It's very interesting. Um, so I've talked about all of this pretty much except for this little part here. And this is part of the vestibular system. The vestibular system has two, um, kind of grossly two different parts. One is these semicircular canals. So these canals are set at 90 degree angles from each other. So you have the x-axis where you shake your head, the y-axis where you nod, then the z-axis where you tilt like this. So just like in the cochlea, there's fluid in these canals here. So then whenever you move, the fluid moves, and that moves hair cells in these canals. So this is one explanation for dizziness. So if you spin around real fast, then all the fluid in your ears starts spinning. And then when you stop, there's inertia. So the fluid keeps going. But then what you see about where you are um, is different. So the visual information and the vestibular information don't mix. That's why you get dizzy. One way to offset this would be to spin around the other direction to get the fluid to go back the other way. Um, or just wait until the inertia stops the flow of the fluid. Um, that brings up an interesting point about the vestibular system is that 
it's not just these parts of the inner ear. So you have the inner ear, but you also have vision, which is very important. And then you also have somatosensory, so the pressure of your feet on the floor. If, for example, you might have had one too many drinks and you get the spins, <laughs> if you were to put your foot on the floor, it gives your brain more information about your actual position in the world, and that might reduce some spinning. Not that you should drink that much, but. <laughs> um, the other part of the vestibular system are the otolith organs, so they're kind of in this section here. And they tell your body about the position of the head relative to gravity. So gravity is really important for this uh, part. So you have um, these otoconia here, which are essentially calcium carbonate crystals. And they sit on top of these hair cells here. And so what happens is when you move your head, and you kind of angular down, it moved, the gravity moves these crystals, so you see here, and it uh, pulls down the hair cells. So depending on where you are, it pulls, the gravity pulls the um, calcium carbonate crystals and that moves the hair cells and tells your body where you are um, in space. This is very gravity dependent. So if you're somewhere where gravity is not like it normally is, then this could be very disorienting. So scuba divers have a problem. Also, interestingly, astronauts. So in space, there is no gravity. And so the system is not working properly. And so uh, it's not actually talked about a lot, but for the first couple of weeks in space, astronauts um, have motion sickness because the system isn't working. So imagine being motion sick for weeks. It's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> um, okay. Right. Um, just want to talk briefly about a few reflexes that are dependent on the vestibular system and kind of trace the path of the vestibular system around. Um, so you have these, um, the, the nerve from the vestibular um, organs in the inner ear, then go into the vestibular uh, nuclei in the medulla and the pons. And then that's used to integrate information from the visual, vestibular, and somatic receptors. Um, basically, it helps you to uh, do corrective movements um, in space. So it's also here in the cerebellum is related um, there's a lot to the cerebellum and also the basal, basal ganglia do for balance and movement. So much so that I want to have a day just talking about the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. But I just want to introduce here uh, that it does play a role and it does incorporate a lot of information from, from the vestibular system. So this will help you from falling and tripping. Then you also have vestibulocolic reflexes that stabilizes the head and neck and a vestibulo-ocular reflex. So this is a very interesting one. So if I'm looking, at Eric, and I'm moving my head, it's like a gyroscope for your eyes. They kind of stay very still. So if you move your head to the right, your eyes move to the left reflexively. And that's kind of based on information the brain receives from uh, these vestibular organs and information the brainstem and cerebellum as well. Um, eventually, the path goes up into the somatosensory system and broadens areas one, two, and three. And that gives you the conscious awareness of your position and your head in space. So like I said, we'll have days where we're just talking about um, the cerebellum and the basal ganglia. We'll talk some more about uh, movements and balance and everything. That's the end of today's Neuro Rounds. Thank you very much. Anybody have any questions? Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You 
you might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.